Let's see, I need one of these. Got a little taller. I wanted to start this morning. We've had some just wonderful worship music. I wanted to start a, um, a music from a little bit different perspective. We've been, we, we've, uh, we're doing for a few weeks now a series in the prophets. I, I dare to call it best sermons ever, not because they're mine best sermons ever, because these are necessarily the, the best sermons ever that you'll hear, but I'm borrowing. I'm borrowing some of what I believe to be the best sermons ever of the prophets. And uh, so we're, we're taking what is it that they, they said and did that made those, those proclamations, those revelations of God's word and God's heart to his people uh, a powerful. There's something that we can learn from if we were to listen in to what God is saying. And so this time we're going we're gonna to turn to another one of those. Uh, it's a prophetic message that begins in the form of a love song. And it got me thinking, thinking about love songs. And there was, a, there was a song years ago that I remembered. And uh, the story behind it is interesting. It was just what well, was not long after the Beatles broke up. After the Beatles broke up, uh, uh, Paul McCartney began doing his thing with a, with a new band called Wings. Uh, and, uh, of course, J John Lennon was doing his own thing. And, and uh, John Lennon had some harsh criticism for Paul McCartney. He said, it seems like all Paul wants to do is, is write these soppy, silly love songs. And this is out in the media, this open criticism and, and uh, a sharp edge to it. And, and Paul McCartney doesn't respond in the media with a comment. Instead, writes a song. I wanted to play just an excerpt of that song for you. See if you recognize it. Yeah, some of you moving out there. You remember that. This is in your wheelhouse. Silly love song. I promised I wouldn't sing this. And what's wrong with that? I'd like to know. I'll lip sync it instead. Cause here I go. Again. That's enough of that. Okay, we'll just stop there. That's silly. There is such a thing as silly love song. And McCartney was on to something there, by the way. There's something about uh, humanity and love songs. Uh, that song that year, regardless of what Lennon thought of it, went to number one on Billboard. Interestingly, Lennon's uh, probably his greatest hit after, after the band broke up. His song, Imagine, only made it to number three. So uh, take the criticism as it comes, but uh, there's something about a love song, isn't there? Well, this morning I want to sing, I, I want to not sing. I want to, I want to talk about a love song, but a not-so-silly love song. I want to talk about a time when God brought a love song to a funeral. I want to, want to uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Now, 
If you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5 starts with a love song. It's a love song concerning a vineyard. And in that love song, there's a basic interpretation as you read through the first seven verses that, that goes basically this. God expects good fruit. And either you give good fruit or you'll get uproot. Okay? That if, if the vineyard doesn't produce what it's supposed to and expected to produce, the vineyard can expect to be rooted up and torn down. That's the basic evaluation of the, of the message of those first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5. It's basically accurate, except it misses something. There's something bigger than that that's in view if we take a different look at Isaiah chapter 5. I want us to put our Old Testament scholars' caps on this morning. Can you do that? We are going to delve into the fields of form criticism and and rhetorical analysis. Doesn't that sound fun? Okay, we're not going to do that for too long, okay, so bear with me, but, but I know you feel a little older already. You're going to be in rhetorical criticism. What is, not criticism, rhetorical analysis. What is that? Well, rhetorical analysis is the analyzing of Rhetoric, very good. You are, you are, you have put your scholars' caps on. Now, rhetoric, you think, well, what is rhetoric? Rhetoric is what has already started in New Hampshire, right? Rhetoric is what politicians do and say whenever it is they want to get elected, those things that they forget about after they've got your vote. That's rhetoric, things you say that you don't really mean, right? No, that's not rhetoric. Rhetoric classically is the, um, the art of argument and especially persuasion. When you want to persuade somebody, when you want to not only inform but move somebody in a particular direction, like they want to move you to the polls and move you to their voting for them, they use rhetoric. They're seeking to persuade you. What I want us to do is look at not only what does Isaiah say in chapter 5, but how he says it, because how he says it is very interesting, and it tells us something about God. It tells us something about a God who, who brings a love song to a funeral. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, as we consider this chapter, Lord, we, we want to see not merely the words on a page. Lord, anybody could open this book and see that. Lord, what we want to see this morning is something about your own heart. And Lord, to, on, a, on a human level, we can explain that, but Lord, there's, there's something that your Spirit needs to show to us. Lord, that your Spirit would, would show something of yourself and your heart and your passion, not only for us, but your love for the lost as well. Would you show us that this morning as we see how you have spoken in the past? And we'll thank you and glorify you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and I, I, Isaiah chapter 5 then, the, the background, the context, is that this is a message that's, well, chapter 5 comes after the first four chapters, so there's a couple of times already where we have Isaiah's message of confronting and condemnation, that, that um, Isaiah has already spoken the whole gamut of look where the nation is, and because of that, this is what has to happen, and yet there is the, the opportunity, there is still set before them a future hope and a hope of restoration. All that has come before, they've heard all that before. Well, Isaiah has said it before, but they haven't necessarily really heard it in here. And so let me come to Isaiah 5. And Isaiah 5 probably is occurring around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, possibly even right within the feast, right within the festivals. There's the talk of, of the wine flowing, and there's the talk of the party atmosphere in this chapter that suggests it's occurring in that setting 
exact way it would be most effective. So let's assume during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the last festival of the Jewish year, it, it, was, the, it was the Grand Harvest Festival. Everything is done. The Day of Atonement even. The people have been regathered. The Day of Atonement, a time of great mourning and grief and, and seeking God's forgiveness. But now they're celebrating uh, the fullness of life. And it's meant to celebrate the fullness of life in God's presence. But that part has kind of gotten pushed off to the side and forgotten along the way. But it's a grand party at the end of the year. The new vintage of, of wine is, or, or, or of the vine, rather, is in the barrels and tucked away. And now a previous vintage has been uncorked and is flowing freely. It's a party in Israel. And this is when Isaiah comes to preach. What's he going to say? How's he going to say it? How is he going to be heard? Because, folks, God wants to be heard. God, not, God only wants to be heard, and God doesn't just throw a tantrum when nobody's listening to him to get us. The, God knows us because he made us, and God uses a vehicle in this chapter that demonstrates something about how urgently he wants these people. God doesn't want these people to run to destruction. He knows what's hanging over their heads, and, he, and yet he still he holds out that opportunity for restoration holds out that invitation to return, and yet he wants it to be received, he wants it to be heard, and so he does that in the form of a love song. And the first seven verses are a love song. Let me read. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he dug and cleared its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, small Bitter, sour. My beloved had a vineyard. He said, let me sing, sing a song. Let me sing a love song. Let me sing a bit of a silly love song. A love song about my beloved and his vineyard. What's he talking about? Is he, is he in love with a vineyard? What's, what's going on here? Well, if you were back one book, you would be in the Song of Solomon. You would find that there's a lot of poetic imagery involved there between the vineyard. Uh, the, the beloved is called a vineyard or compared, and there's a lot of analogy and allegory. I'm not going to unpack all of that. I, I would blush, but it's there. So we're still a little unsure. Is he talking about a lady or is he talking about some land? Uh, we get to verses 3 and 4 and the love song all of a sudden changes. Look at verse 3. Oh, now, okay, we've had this. This was the outcome. The, the only sour grapes, only bitter, little, wild grapes, instead of the good grapes that would yield. It's kind of, I don't know if you ever saw the Duck Dynasty episode where Willie buys a vineyard. Anybody see that? Yeah. Didn't go so well. So they bought some grapes, and they bought a lot of sugar, and it came out like turpentine or something. So it's a bad deal all the way around. That's what these grapes were like. And so now he says, oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So he invites them in. We have moved from love song into divorce court. There has a charge been laid, and he invites, he invites the people who are listening to now be the jury to judge his case. Look what I have done and look what has come of it. You decide what's the right thing to do now. It's become a, what's called a judicial parable. It's another common form in Israel. It's a common, like a song was a common form. Here, this judicial parable, the one you know best. 
is uh, that, uh, that episode with, with the prophet Nathan and David after David's sin with Bathsheba. And, and Nathan the prophet first weaves this story about this poor farmer, this poor peasant who had one little lamb, one lamb that his family treasured. And the rich guy comes along, and instead of taking something out of his own flocks, he takes that one. You're perhaps familiar with the story. And, and it's, an, it's an analogy, of course. It's a parable, a judicial parable that invites David to pronounce judgment. But when he pronounces the judgment, he's pronouncing judgment upon himself. But it, invite, it draws David not merely intellectually. It invites him emotionally into the issue. He says, God doesn't want any, uh, just merely a cognitive acknowledgement out of analysis. He wants them to get it in their hearts. So we have this judicial parable. And then from there, the subject of the song moves more, more normal into what would a vineyard owner then do? I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard, verse 5. I will remove its hedge. It'll be devoured. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall not grow up in it. And he's not talking about just the vineyard. He's talking about Israel, as you're going to see in just a moment. But look what it says in the end of verse 6. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. Wait a minute. This is not any ordinary vineyard owner. Any ordinary vineyard owner could shout at the clouds for rain all he wanted. We can't control that. We can't do that. Only the Lord himself. And not Baal, the false god that they had begun to worship, but only the Lord himself controls the winds and the waves and the clouds and the rain. I will command the clouds and the rain, and they will rain no more upon it. For, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, and behold, an outcry. And on it goes. He, the, 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 the forms that he's using, on and on and on, they, um, even, even in that verse 7, a couple of other things I throw you. There's, there's a rhyming there. There's, there's a couple of, of words that are used. He, he uses the word, ju- he looked for justice. Well, that looked. First of all, looked, that's also in verse 4. It's also in verse 2. It ties the whole thing together. He looked, he expected, he expected, he expected. And what God expected was not, was not provided. What God looked for did not come. God had expectation. It's kind of like when Jesus came to the fig tree expecting figs, and yet there were none. What are we going to do? Dig it around it one more season. Wait one more season. Give it another chance, but if nothing comes, it's going to be uprooted. He looked for it. He looked for what? He looked for justice in verse 7, and behold, bloodshed. There's a word play going on. You don't see it in the English. He, it might be something closer to this. He looked, he looked for right and instead found a fight. He looked for justice and found bloodshed. The Hebrew words are mishpat and mishpak. And the following, righteousness, Tzedakah, and behold, an outcry, Tzedakah. He looked for Mishpat, and he found Mishkak. He looked for Tzedakah, and he found Tzedakah. You see the wordplay that's going on, and that's, that's to echo around in their heads using words that rhyme and sound the same but mean very different things so they will stick in the people's memory. They will echo around inside there. God wants them to hear this. The, the sermon then moves into a different form called a woe oracle. And that's important, also at the emotional level. There are certain forms that were common in Old, Old Testament, and there are certain forms that are common in our culture. 
There are certain forms of words, words given in a certain form or formula that when you hear them, it takes you emotionally to a certain place. Let me show you. Everybody close your eyes just for a minute. No tricks here. Don't worry. No tricks. Close your eyes. Okay. Close your eyes. Now listen. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the presence of God and these witnesses. Okay. Open them up. You half expected when you opened your eyes to see a bride and a groom standing here on the stage, didn't you? There's a particular form that that form takes us somewhere. That form always occurs in a certain place. It's like when you hear that solemn, lonely sound of the bugler playing taps. It takes you some. It's more than just a song. It's more than just a melody. It's more than just a mournful tune. It takes you somewhere because it's a shared form, and all of us know what it means and where it takes us. And that's where Isaiah is taking them. He uses something called a woe oracle. Now, because you're Old Testament scholars, because you're Old Testament Hebrew scholars, we put those hats on, you know exactly what that is. A woe oracle is a lament formula heard in the funeral. It's the cry of a mother who said, I, I knew this was going to happen. He's dead because he, he, he dabbled in drugs and he ran with the wrong crowd and I cried to him and he wouldn't listen and he pushed me aside and he got in deeper and deeper and now it has ripped away his life. It includes what was done and the woeful result. And it's repeated. It's a woe oracle. When, when somebody starts off with that cry, woe. Remember when Jesus says, woe to you hypocrites, Pharisees? He's using a woe oracle. He's pronouncing a, a, a death judgment upon them. Your way is going to end in death as you continue in it. This woe oracle is, has moved what we, what we began with a love song, has moved into a funeral. And that's the, that's the biggest part of the song. It starts out in verse 8. Here's a classic woe oracle. You have one line of, of, the, of the situation, the actions, and then two lines or two verses of the consequences. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed will yield but one ephah, two measurements concerning dry measure. So he, he has the, this is, this is the situation, and because of that, this is the outcome. Notice the math there. They have joined house to houses. What they've done is the rich and the wealthy, those that have the means and those that have the political power behind them, have been um, laying plans that allow people to get in debt, allow their homes to be put up as collateral, their land, their inheritance, their field, so that when something doesn't go well, they don't have the resources, they cannot repay, and for a relatively small amount owed, their whole inheritance is taken away. Sometimes even their children become the slaves of the wealthy to whom they were indebted. 
And normally, any land lost in such a manner would have to be returned in the seventh year, the sabbatical year, but that's been ignored for years now. It doesn't happen anymore. And so what happens is the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. The poor live like peasants on the land of the rich that used to be theirs but is no longer. They add house to house. They add field to field. They add, and the math here is one plus one plus one plus one equals nothing. That even what the rich have, because they have taken away the land, which is also the inheritance, which to an Israelite was their place in God's community, because the rich have taken that away from them, God will take their home away from them. Where are they going to go? They're going to go away into exile. He said, nobody's, you know who's going to live on this land that's all been gathered together into one huge estate? The homeless are going to live there. The nomads are going to wander through their broken down banquet halls and the, and the sheep are going to graze. The wild goats are going to graze through these fields and vineyards that they have collected to themselves. The one plus one houses, one plus one fields, all that mass together will equal nothing. That's a woe oracle. Ten acres of vineyard are going to give you about six gallons of wine. I don't know if you know anything about vineyards. I don't know a whole lot about vineyards, but that's not a lot of wine for 10 acres of vine, okay? The, the, um, normally, when you, when you sow seed, do you expect more grain than the seed you sowed, or do you expect less grain to come than the seed that you sowed? You, you, expect, a, you, you expect 100 times in grain what you sowed in seed. Here, you're going to get a tenth back of the seed that you sowed. You're only going to get a tenth back. If you, if you, if you, if you had a hundred bags of seed, you're going to get ten bags of corn or grain as a result of that planting. Not a very good payoff, is it? It doesn't make sense because the blessing, the fruitfulness that comes from God himself is going to be withheld. It's a woe oracle. It repeats in verse 11. Woe to those, you see it again, who rise early in the morning. And then it tells what they've done. Verse 12, they have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord. They do not see the work of his hands. Therefore, now from therefore, it's not just two lines, it's not just two verses this time, but all the way down to verse, all the way down through verse 19. No, sorry, verse 17. Five verses now to describe the consequences. So the, war or, the woe oracle gets bigger. And then look what happens in verse, uh, was it, verse 18. It was, again, as a woe oracle. Woe to those who draw iniquity, who draw sin with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Who are they talking about there? Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. They say, well, if God's going to do all this thing, let's see it. Let God's work come speedily, because they disregard the Lord's work, okay? And so you expect to say, well, what's going to happen to them talking like that? Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness to light. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes and drinkers of wine and valiant men mixing strong drink. That word for heroes that's the word gibor. That's the, that's the same word that's used of David's mighty men. They're mighty men. They're war heroes. They're bravest of the brave. You know what they're known for? The champions of the day have become champions of drink. They're party animals. Party animals are the, are the heroes of the society today. That's what he's talking about. But you notice something else? One verse after another, woe to those, woe to those, woe to those. Four times, what's happened with the woe oracle? You're Hebrew scholars, you're Old Testament scholars, you put on your rhetorical analysis hats. 
What's gone on in the Woe Oracle? What's gone wrong with it? First of all, there is a situation described, and then what happens next in a Woe Oracle? There's a consequence that comes out of that. Because of this, this is what's going to happen. And here it's because of this, and because of this, and because of this. Now, everybody, everybody who hears this knows a war oracle. Everybody who hears this knows a funeral lament. Everybody knows what taps is supposed to sound like. And all of a sudden, it's the same, it's the same uh, couple of measures played over and over and over again. And you know that's wrong. It's not right. And it heightens the anxiety. And it raises, the, it's, it's kind of like being, 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 being hit over and over again without any chance to recover. God is working urgently, desperately to get their attention. I told you all that to tell you this. Let me summarize. God begins at a party. He speaks into a party. How do you get anybody's attention in the midst of a party? Isaiah says, let me sing a love song. The prophet's singing a love song. Hey, guys, quiet, quiet down. Let's listen in. And so he gets their attention, and he begins to sing, but the song, very quickly, they realize, is about them. And the song moves from a love song to divorce court to a funeral lament. And it's a funeral lament all the way to the end of the chapter. God has brought a love song to a funeral because they don't see it, but that's where they're living. They are living with the condemnation of death already hanging over their heads. God's already told them, but they haven't heard it. And so God brings it in a new way. He brings the message in a new, fresh, and different way that they hadn't heard before. Why? Because God urgently wants them to hear. God deeply cares for those who are living, living in a funeral. I know the young adults have been just starting a journey through the book of Romans taking kind of big chapters, a couple chapters a week to kind of get the big view. And the last chapter, I think last Sunday, they were looking at, at uh, the, how, we, how humanity already lives under the plight of condemnation. Humanity is already condemned. It's not that God is going to condemn one day. Humanity already is living under a plight of condemnation. The, the uh, outcome of that could fall at any moment for any one of us, but we all live condemned unless we have come to refuge in Christ. So that, 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 that funeral lament is already true about me and about you unless we have found life, new life, by faith in Christ. Living under the plight of condemnation, yet God deeply cares for those who are living in a funeral. You know people around you that are um, very busy in life, and life seems to be going well, and they're very successful, and things are going good, and all's well, so it seems, and yet they're living in the midst of a funeral, and they just don't know it yet. They haven't heard taps yet, but you and I know it's coming. God knows it's coming. God cares very deeply about those who are living in the midst of a funeral, and he's very intentional about how he reach, reaches out to them. We would want to hold back. We would withhold, but true love pursues. True love is willing to risk rejection. True love, when you, when you love somebody, think back to when you loved and it was still risky. When you wanted to ask her, but she hadn't said yes yet. That first time, I still remember, I won't rehearse the story again, but I still remember the first time that I asked Julie out. I was a coward. I did it over the phone. But when you first you, you wanted her to say yes badly enough that you were willing to take the risk that maybe the response would be, ew, no way. And you didn't want that. 
But you were willing to take that chance. Why? Because true love is willing to take the risk because of that wanting to embrace. You'll take the risk of you no way in order to hear, okay, I'll go with you. From Eden on, from the Garden of Eden onward, God has been extending that invitation. God has been in pursuit of humanity, of you and I. It's seen in the, the height of it is reached in, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 where it says, God, who at different times and in various ways spake in the past to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in Son. What has God done? God has so urgently wants to reveal himself to humanity that he has sent his own Son. God has extended his own son as the revelation, as the communication, as the word made flesh in our midst. And God sent that word even though it would be rejected. God sent himself as the revelation. God translating to humanity, even knowing that humanity would reject him, would ridicule him, would mock him and despise him and beat him and abuse and mistreat him and even crucify him. And yet he would cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Because God is willing, God, God, the God of the universe, think of it, is willing to be rejected by meager humanity. Why does God put himself in that situation? Because God wants to embrace humanity. Any who will hear him, so God will go to every extent. God has gone to the ultimate extent that humanity could hear him. This is the extent of his love for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That's why the son came, because God so loved you. So in the incarnation itself, we see the fullness of God singing a love song in the midst of the world's funeral. God wants to be heard. There's a secondary point in all of this as well. A secondary point. Not only does God love us this much that he'll sing a love song in a funeral in order to be heard, but God knows your grief. God knows then what that rejection is like. God knows what it is to have vulnerability thrown back in his face. God knows when nobody else seems to, when nobody else seems to care, maybe because nobody else really knows, but God knows. Like the old hymn says, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. Do you believe that? God knows. God knows what it's like to love and be faithful and yet to be cast aside. God knows what it's like to be mocked and maligned for, for standing for what is right. God knows the pain, the consequences, when others' sins fall back on you and you bear the burden of it. God knows what that's like. God knows what it's like to endure the death of a loved one. He gave his own son. God knows what it's like to see your loved ones, the ones that you love and would give yourself for, make bad choices and throw their lives away into ruin. And yet they won't hear you. God knows what that's like. He's right there. You know, God knows the things that break our hearts because God himself has chosen to enter into relationship with humanity. And that, as you have learned, relationship with humanity is a dangerous place, isn't it? Yet God knows. And yet because he loves, 
he is there anyway. And he extends himself into that place where he might be rejected because God so loves. We see it in Isaiah. God loves him so much. In chapter 5, he sings a love song at a funeral because he wants them to hear. He wants them to hear with, his heart, with their hearts and not merely with their ears. God knows all of that, and yet God has chosen intentionally to love. When we join him there, when we choose to love anyway, despite what they say, despite what the reaction may do, when we, when we take the risk that maybe they will say, maybe they'll say, yeah, I'll go with you. Yeah, I've never thought about that. I, 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 I wondered, I, I don't really understand this all this about Jesus, but I, 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 I'll hear more. When you're willing to take the risk to hear that answer, knowing that instead the answer may very well be, ew, no way. You're one of those, and you could be mocked and ridiculed and rejected because of it. When we join God there, we ourselves experience and learn something of God's heart. Just as God looked for and expected justice and righteousness among his people, why? Because that's his character. That's who God is. So he expects who he is out of his people. The God who loves so much that he sings a love song at a funeral, that God expects us, is, is thrilled to see us as his people, as his children, join in the same. To put ourselves out there to take that risk for the sake of somebody else, even when you want to withdraw. You want to withdraw, you want to protect, you want to preserve your own self from, from the hurt that could so easily come. Doesn't it happen when we've been hurt in love? We, we shield ourselves. We armor our hearts. God would have us instead to be vulnerable, put ourselves out there, willing even to be rejected if it might mean that that one that I extend myself to might also know the love of God that I have come to know in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. When we want to withdraw, we have to reach out. Now, it begins with humility. You remember all those woe oracles I showed you? And you can, as Old Testament scholars that you are, you'll, you'll want to go back through and check those again. There's one more. You know where it is? It's in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, when, when Isaiah is called, he, he rehearses his prophetic call, his call to ministry to speak to, to people for God. And he rehearses. And when he sees God in his glory and his holiness as he is, you know what Isaiah says? Woe is me. Some of you probably thought that Ismi was the name of Isaiah's horse. Not. Woe is me. He pronounces the same woe oracle that he's already pronounced upon Israel. He pronounces it upon himself. Isaiah starts from that place of humility that I am with them in this funeral. And I needed God to rescue me out of this funeral just as they need God to rescue them in love out of that same funeral. It starts with humility. God knew his people. God knew these people. He knew the forms. He knew what to say, he knew how to say it. Will we take time to know where the people around us are at? 
where we take time to, to understand where they're at, what they're experiencing, what they're thinking, that we might be able to speak into it in a way that, that connects, that we might be able to indeed speak heart to heart to, as it were, sing a love song that they can relate to rather than shouting from across the street. You see, we have to get close. We have to know them. I, I remember a book I read uh, talked about just the interpersonal relationships of evangelism. And, and it, it, one of, one of the, just an example of this, uh, uh, one suggestion was get to know the rhythms in your neighborhood. When do, if, if you want to meet your neighbors in an unassuming and non-threatening way, you want to just get to know the people around you, when are they out? Well, man, we hide behind six-foot privacy fences around here. How will I ever see my neighbors? They drive into, into, their, into their garage when they come home from work and they're never seen or heard from again. Well, when do they put their trash out? Oh, that's Tuesday night because trash is picked up on Wednesday. Well, about what time do the, do, the, do the folks across the street from you put their trash out? That's when you could put your trash out. And while you all are in the midst of the trash together, because that's what we are in life, when you're in the midst of the rubbish there, you can say, oh, hi, how are you doing? What's going on lately? Or something. I don't know what you're saying next after that because I'm lousy at this whole relationship thing, but you'll know what to do from there. But do we get to know where they're at and what's going on that we might intersect. Example for me. I w it, it just occurred to me the other day. Neighbors next door, they used to have kids at home that would mow their lawn, just like we used to have kids at home that would mow our lawn. And The kids aren't there anymore. The lawn still grows, so I'm out pushing the mower around the other day. And I thought, you know, what if I were to just continue on and do the neighbor's lawn as well? I could do that. There's ways that I've helped them in the past, and it really, I, I was surprised at the impact that it made for doing something that seemed, well, just fairly kind of that's the thing I ought to do. But what would it do if I just, you know, mowed their lawn too, as long as I don't mess it up terribly? That, uh, you know, they're going to ask me, well, why'd you do that? Well, I remember, you know, a while ago, you, you, you make some really good cookies. I remember those cookies. And I just thought, well, here I am mowing my lawn, you know, and I'm connecting with them with something they, but what can we do for people around us that will connect with them that can lead to next steps, next conversation, relationship together? These people we need to care about. And, and we do care about them. That's, that's the reality of it. We do, and yet we're hesitant because we want to withdraw out of self-protection. And that's what God let go of. That's what God lays aside and said, I am willing to be rejected in order to extend my love to them. And so we'll do the same. Sometimes when you take a chance, you do something you didn't expect to do, God will join in it and something unexpected will happen. I was driving down a few weeks ago. I had the opportunity to drive up while I was dropping Daniel. He was home for spring break. This is a long convoluted story. But, so I, I, I dropped him up in Auburn to meet his ride. And from there, I went further north to Linwood and I met the Evans who were home for Rob's grandmother's funeral. I met Rob and Laura for lunch up there in Linwood, and we had a nice lunch together, and then I'm driving. It's a long way to drive back from for just lunch, right? But, you know, it, 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 was, it, was, it was still good to see them again. But on the way back, I had to pull in for gas, and I stopped for gas in an out-of-the-way place, somewhere around a little hole-in-the-wall place called Chehalis, a tiny, miserable little place. Anyway, <laughs> I say that just for John and Rochelle's benefit. But uh, somewhere, somewhere just south of that, country, not much around, and I, I stopped for gas, and... Uh, as I'm just pulling, pulling into the gas pump, I see this guy come out of the store. He's got a backpack on, and he's heading out, out of the parking lot and on down the road. I thought, oh, that's interesting. He's like, maybe he's one of these through hikers just on a long journey. It was a 
you know, just a young guy, average-looking guy, carrying this backpack around, a sleeping bag and a sleeping roll on the back. I thought, that's really interesting. I get my gas and so forth and get back on the road again, come up to the freeway on-ramp. There he is. He's looking for a ride. And so I thought, oh, got this backpack thing. I, uh, maybe, I'll, maybe we'll be able to talk about some cool backpack stories. And so I stopped and offered him a ride. Where are you going? Going down to Vancouver. Oh, man, that's great, because he was, he was meeting somebody in the Vancouver area. That was, he's, he's on his journey from Utah. He'd been up to Victoria, B.C. He's on his way to Mexico to connect with another friend there, and then he's going to get back home. He's in the midst of his college program, something about bioengineering complicated stuff that I didn't really fully understand, but it sounded very interesting. But, uh, and so he's, he's meeting friends and places along the way and uh, doing really crazy, risky stuff in, in to do that. But we got to talking, and, he, and we ended up talking about spiritual things. And I learned out that he had been raised a Mormon, and now he'd moved from, from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church, and we, we talked about the differences. And he was very astute and very aware and open about the differences, and we talked about uh, um, that how a person can't be saved by their works, and that was very clear in his upbringing as a as a as a Mormon in the family. That, but but a person cannot be saved by their works. It's only what Jesus does for us. We talked about Jesus as the Son of God, and that's what what, what caused him to leave the the um, his his Mormon faith, and and yet uh, some of the differences still that lingered. We got to talk a lot. Of, I never expected to have that level of a conversation with this guy, and it just went on and on with genuine interest and asking questions and and I, I got to the point of even describing the difference between works that are fruit out of faith versus things that we do to try to please God and earn God's approval and and he was I, I, I use the example of a fruit tree you can't hang fruit on a tree to make it a fruit tree but a healthy fruit tree will grow the fruit a healthy faith does produce a fruit of works in life but you can't do good things in order to have faith or be saved and he said Nobody ever explained that to me before. And he got it, and the light came. It was just a wonderful conversation just because I took the chance that maybe this guy was, was a, a, a knife-carrying serial killer, and this was the last ride I was going to give anybody. But, you know, there wasn't anybody else in the car with me. What do I got to lose? Give it a try. It could have been a very quiet, awkward drive all the way to Vancouver. It turned out. God did something wonderful out of it. It never would have happened if I hadn't taken the risk and gone against all my good senses and my mother who said, don't pick up hitchhikers, and did it anyway. As a church, we have an opportunity before us this morning. So I, I, I learned about the situation yesterday and said, what if we did this? And uh, there's, there's um, somebody in, in our body that has a nephew who's 40 years old and, and has stage 4 cancer. It's very serious. It's urgent. He is at present without hope, without God in the world. He needs somebody to come sing a love song at a funeral before he comes to the funeral. And uh, his, 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 his mother is caring for him, and yet it's a very difficult and desperate situation. What? I said, well, what can we do? We're a long way from where he is. We're far removed. What could we do? And I said, what if we did this? First said, yeah, that'd be good. We could do that. There's, there's going to be there's 20 different cards. We chose different cards so they wouldn't all look the same. And I want 20 different hands, different handwriting, who will say different things to just take one of those cards that are on the back table right behind the sound booth back there at the end of the service when just before you're on your way out, go to the table, get one of those cards, write 
a word of encouragement. Let, him, let this young man know that you're going to be praying for him. Let him know that you care about him. Even let him know that you, you, you hope that he has the faith in Christ that you have and that that will be a help and a comfort to him in the midst of all that he's facing and the, and the, and the hardship of the treatments and so forth. You'll know what to say. Some of you have been through these kind of things. You'll know what to say. I don't have to tell you what to say. But the cards are there, and we would love it that if, you, if, if, we, if we had a bunch of those cards that we could gather up, just write his name on the outside envelope, leave him right there on the table, and we'll bundle them all together, and we will get him to him. And just for him to know that in his extended family, somebody's church heard of him and cares about him. That's one thing that we can do that will strengthen the testimony of people in his family that are already around him. So I hope you'll join me in that today. You know, I want to close with this. There was a man in our church, in fact, in fact the father of, of, some of, our menu, uh, of some of our members, Albert, um, told me that he, God had given him the best wife a man could ever give. And when Albert's wife died in 2006, I believe it was, he himself didn't really see any, any, any reason to go on living. Albert loved her so dearly he could not imagine. A lot of us didn't think he was going to make it through the year without her. They're, they were bound heart to heart that close. Albert would have sang a love song at her funeral that day in 2006. Oh, yeah, he loved her dearly. Well, Albert lived with us another four years as a member of this church before he went home and joined his beloved in that chorus around the throne before the Lamb, worshiping the one who was worthy of all of our praise and all of our love because he first loved us and gave himself for our sins. That kind of love, that kind of giving yourself away for another that is often witnessed in a marriage like that, and yet can also be witnessed among friends and in family. We need to be willing to do what it takes to share and to show the love of God, even if it's so unexpected as to sing a love song at a funeral. Would you pray with me? Father, you know people in our orbit, in our circle of contacts and connections, people you have placed us near that we need to know better than we do. Lord, would you help us in the midst of this week to have the courage and the confidence in you to rather to live more in your character than our own, to live in your courage rather than our own, that we would, we would be willing, Lord, to risk rejection for the benefit of sharing your grace and your mercy. Lord, would you do that through us? Would you embolden us, but embolden us, Father, in humility, not in criticism. Embolden us, Lord, to speak of your love where